Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. wondered as you read the resurrection story in the book of Luke uh, as to why Peter ran to the tomb that morning? I mean, the women came back and they told the story of seeing an angel and that the angel had proclaimed to them that Jesus is alive, that he is risen. And, uh, They came back to tell Peter, and here is Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times, Uh, the one who had run out weeping after he had done that, and the one who was in hiding, honestly, uh, during the uh, crucifixion and afterwards. And certainly on that morning, uh, he must have still felt that uh, showing his face out in public anywhere might still be very dangerous and perhaps even life-threatening. And yet, Luke very distinctly tells us that Peter got up and left that room that he was in in hiding and, and went to the tomb to see firsthand what was going on there. So we're going to talk today in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study as to uh, why did Peter feel the compulsion to do that? And we're also going to look into the language that Luke used in this account to understand something else about Peter. And that is when he went home after visiting the tomb, that he had a question on his mind. And basically that question was, something new has begun. What is it? Something new has been created today. What is it? Did he ever get to the answer of that question that day, that morning? That's what this episode is all about. So before we uh, get into the lesson itself today, I wanted to do a little housekeeping here. And uh, this has to do with a conversation that we had last week. Uh, those of you who weren't here, if you didn't lit here or listen, get a chance to listen to the recording from last week, you can and you can hear us hear the discussion. But the question was, you know, what is this all about when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? Why is it the Son of Man that that is brought up? And then we said, you know, well, like Ezekiel in the Old Testament is called a son of man too. So how is that different? 
And so we talked about uh, last week that um, when God call, talks, or call, when someone call, God calls Ezekiel or an Old Testament prophet a son of man, that basically is just saying that they are a man. That, uh, for example, <laughs> I, I don't know that this was in God's way of thinking, but my way of thinking was that God was saying to some of the prophets of the Old Testament, hey, okay, you're a prophet, and I'm using you to be a prophet and to proclaim my word, but don't get the big head, you're still just a man. So son of man was the identification that, yes, you're a prophet, but basically is identifying them as a man. Whereas son of man, as, a, as applied to Jesus, is a title. The son of man, like the son of God, king of kings, lord of lords. It's a title of, uh, that identifies Jesus as, uh, as the Messiah and as set apart from, uh, uh, you know, uh, just being a human man. That, uh, and, and one of the reasons, that, but that gets us to the point that my, my point last week was, whereas in Jesus' day it was easy to see him as a man, difficult to see him as God, Today we have the opposite problem. We have no problem seeing Jesus as God, really, as those of us who are believers. But sometimes we have a difficult believing him and seeing him as just a man, flesh and blood, and had the same emotions, the same uh, experience in life as a full-fledged, all-man person, uh, as we have the experience as men and women. And so the Son of Man is a reminder to us today that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And as we experience life with our difficulties and so forth, he, ex he experienced life in the same way. And that's how he can relate to us, because he had the same experience we had. He, when we, we get hungry, he was hungry. We get tired, he was tired. Uh, we, were we get disappointed in people and sad, he is disappointed and sad. So uh, he can relate to us as our Savior and identify with us because he lived as fully man and fully God. So that's as far as we took it last week. And so I went and I did a little research here. And this goes into a couple of other reasons and things and a little bit more detail. So I wanted to share this with you today as a follow-up from that discussion because that, that took a lot of our class time last week and you guys were very interested in it. And so I wanted to get back and to go into a little bit more fully. So this is the question is, what does it mean that Jesus is the son of man? The answer is, uh, Jesus is, re is referred to as the son of man 88 times in the New Testament. In fact, son of man is the primary title Jesus used when referring to himself. The only use of Son of Man in a clear reference to Jesus spoken by someone other than Jesus came from the lips of Stephen as he was being martyred in Acts chapter 7. Son of Man is a title of humanity. Other titles for Christ, such as Son of God, are overt in their focus on his deity. Son of Man, in contrast, focuses on the humanity of Christ. God called the prophet Ezekiel Son of Man 93 times. In this way, God was simply calling Ezekiel a human being. Son of man is simply a paraphrased term for human. Jesus Christ was truly a human being. He came in the flesh. That's from 1 John. Son of man is a title of humility. The second person of the Trinity, eternal in nature, left heaven's glory and took on human flesh, becoming the son of man. 
born in a manger and despised and rejected by mankind. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. The Son of Man ate and drank with sinners. The Son of Man suffered at the hands of men. This intentional lowering of his status from King of Heaven to Son of Man is the epitome of humility. And I wanted to give you a little illustration of something, because this talks about Jesus coming to earth as a man and lowering himself from the King of Kings to become a flesh and blood man who travels the dirty roads of earth. And uh, so there's a story of um, a grandfather who went to visit his daughter and her new and her husband and their relatively uh, newly born uh, child who was uh, about six months old. He was old enough to uh, sit up and to crawl, but not old, but not old enough to walk yet. And so um, the uh, his daughter, the mother, would put the baby in a playpen while she was busy doing things. And uh, the baby didn't want to be in the playpen by himself. And so he would always cry when he was in the playpen. And uh, as parents do sometimes, and we were told to do this too by our pediatrician with our kids, and that is let them cry. Let them cry because they'll stop eventually. <clears throat> and if you pick them up and try to soothe them, then every time you put them down, they'll cry because they know that that'll get you to do what they want you to do. And they're manipulating you even at that young age. <clears throat> so just let them cry. So uh, while the grandfather was visiting, uh, the mother put the baby in the playpen, and then she and, the, she and her father went into the kitchen to prepare uh, dinner. And uh, so while they were in there, the baby started crying. And so the grandfather got up and went in, and he picked the baby up. And the baby stopped crying. And so his daughter came in and said, no, dad, no, no, don't pick him up. Put him back in the playpen. We're letting him cry. Explain the whole thing. Come back in the, come back, come back in the kitchen, huh? <laughs> so, so the baby started crying again. And so, again, the grandfather went in and picked the baby up. And the daughter comes in. And she really scolds him this time. Don't do that. Leave him in. We're trying to put him back in that playpen. So they go back into the kitchen again, and the baby starts crying again. So sure enough, the grandfather leaves, and the baby stops crying. And the daughter's had it now. She is fuming. And she storms in there, stomps into the other room where the playpen is, and she looks, and the grandfather is in the playpen <laughs> with the baby. <laughs> so the grandfather became a baby to address the baby's needs and crying. And that's a picture of what God did for us, you know? He's in heaven, but in order to relate to us and, and come to us uh, in our humanity, he had to come to be a human with us, just like that grandfather had to get into that playpen and get down and dirty with that baby. So, so God came to earth to, uh, to help us and to make us feel better. So I love that story. Okay, so do one. The Son of Man is a title of deity. Ezekiel may have been a son of man, but Jesus is the Son of Man. As such, Jesus is the supreme example of all that God intended mankind to be, the embodiment of truth and grace. In him, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
That's from Colossians. For this reason, the Son of Man was able to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came to save lives, rise from the dead, and execute judgment. At his trial before the high priest, Jesus said, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on, on the clouds of heaven. This statement immediately ended the trial as the court accused the Lord of blasphemy and condemned him to death. And then finally, the Son of Man is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' claim before the high priest to be the Son of Man was a reference to the prophecy of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And this is what Daniel 7 says. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. <clears throat> That's the end of the quotation. Daniel saw glory, worship, and an everlasting kingdom given to the Messiah, here called the Son of Man. And Jesus applied this prophecy to himself. Jesus also spoke of his coming kingdom on other occasions. The author of Hebrews used a reference to the Son of Man in the Psalms to teach that Jesus is the true Son of Man and will be the ruler of all things. That's from Psalm, Psalm 8. The Son of Man, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, will be the king. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. As the Son of God and the Son of Man, he is deserving of both titles. So there you go. That's kind of a more full explanation of what we talked about last week. So, All right, now we're going to run into the... Yes. There you go. <laughs> the Lord works in mysterious ways. Okay, so let's look at uh, Luke chapter 24. I'm going to, we're going to try to get through uh, Luke today, and then we can go on to John next week. So Luke chapter 24, we've kind of dealt with everything all the way down to the uh, last verse there. But I'm going to read the whole thing so we can just set the context. And uh, as I have been doing, I'm not going to read out of uh, the NIV, which I have here, I'm going to read from the original, uh, the way it was done in the original Greek. Not reading any Greek, but reading in the English translation in the way that it's written uh, in the Greek translation. So, and I'm going to and I'm going to start on uh, Luke 23, actually verse uh, 55, because uh, that kind of gives us the context too of what comes at first uh, chapter 24. So, Luke 23:55 it says. And also having and having followed also women, and having followed also women who were come with him out of Galilee, saw the tomb and how was laid his body. And having returned, they prepared aromatics and ointments, and on the Sabbath remained quiet according to the commandment. Then chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing which they had prepared aromatics and some others with them. They found, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Amazing! Something they just did not expect, you know? 
And having entered, they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And the thing is there, Luke is so precise. He wanted us to know that these women knew not only what tomb it was, but they knew exactly where in the tomb he was laid. So they knew exactly where to go to find the right tomb and exactly where to look when they got in the tomb. That's the whole point of 23, 55, and 56 that we just read. Luke wants us to know there was no mistake here. They knew which tomb to go to, and they knew when they got in the tomb exactly where to look, and they did, and na-na, na-na-na, na-na-na, Jesus is not there. Verse 4, And it came to pass, as they were perplexed, and the idea there is that they were just entirely at a loss to explain what was going on. As, they, as it came to pass, as they were perplexed um, about this, uh, that behold, can you believe it? Luke is saying, two men stood by them in garments shining. You might have dazzling, you might have like lightning, and all of those translations of that Greek word were accurate. Shining, dazzling, shining like lightning. So it was supernatural. These weren't just normal guys hanging around the tomb. <clears throat> Verse 5, and filled with fear, and becoming filled with fear, is that the idea there, they, they, uh, and they becoming filled with fear and bowing the face to the earth, they said to them, the angel said to the women, why seek ye the living with or among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you, yet being in Galilee? And we've gone into that in quite some depth about how he would have talked to them at that point. Verse 7, saying, It behooveth the Son of Man. There's that title. And it behooveth, or you might have the word must there uh, in your translation. The idea is that, the Greek idea of that word is, it was necessary. It had to be this way. So it was necessary that the Son of Man to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and the third day to arise. We talked about how you can find in Luke uh, 9 and Luke 18 specific instances where Jesus told them this right clearly, very clearly, that this is going to happen. So this is to what uh, the um, angel is referring to here, because it's like, this wasn't, he didn't keep this secret from you. Verse 8, and they remembered his words, and then they remembered his words. And having returned from the tomb now, they related these things, all these things, to the eleven and to all the rest. We talked about how uh, Luke uses the rest or others in his um, account here to talk about other women who went to the tomb and other people to whom they told this to when they got back from the tomb. Making He wants us to know this was a bigger... Uh, this was a bigger thing than we sometimes think about because sometimes we only think about the three or four women, four women who went to the tomb and the 11 disciples and it was kept within the house of these few people. But Luke is making it clear that there were other women who went, we don't know how many, and there were other people who heard their story, <clears throat> not just the 11, we don't know how many. But Luke's idea is here that this is a bigger thing than just a few, a very small hand, handful of people. So verse 10, 
it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary of James, Mary the mother of James, and the rest with them, there you go again, the rest, the others, who told uh, to the apostles these things. And appeared before them like and appeared before them like idle talk, or you might have nonsense. Uh, and appeared before them like idle talk, their words, and they, the disciples, disbelieved them. And the idea there is when it talks about idle talk, or you might have nonsense, and, and then and, uh, the NIV says, but they uh, but they did not believe the women because their words, the women's words, seemed like them, seemed to them like nonsense. And we talked about last week how the word translated there as nonsense or uh, in idle words uh, is a medical term in Greek, and it means the babbling of a fevered and insane mind. Yeah. The disciples said, these women are cray-cray. Stan? Yeah. Another James, yet uh, we we you, you probably weren't here. We went through one week that we found there were five people named James in the New Testament, and and there are a lot of people named Mary too, right? And so you have you know, the, and they try to refer to them with identifiers in Scripture. So you so so when they talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, they usually say Mary, the mother of Jesus, or if they talk about you know Salome. They often refer to her as the mother of James and John. Uh, and in this, in this occasion, you have yet a third Mary whose son is also named James. And so they refer to her as Mary, the mother of James. So uh, these are all identifiers so that if you were there and part of the group at that time, you knew who these people were, right? It'd be like me saying, you know, oh, okay, this is Greg who is the doctor at Children's. When I'm talking, when someone might talk about, well, there's also, my name's also Greg. And with me, they say, oh, Greg, who teaches the Sunday school class. They've talked about me. Or Greg, who's the doctor, was a doctor at Children. So there are, there are identifiers. So when, but the people, <laughs> the people who are in this class or in this church, you don't have to say any more than that. That's enough to identify. You know who they're talking about. If I read somewhere, remember it says, Mary, the mother of somebody, if we're talking about Christ, it's going to say Jesus. Generally speaking, yes, that's true. Yeah, that would be true. This is probably James Bless, the other, one of the other disciples named James. Right, that's another uh, possibility. It could be, there was James the Greater and James the Lesser, both apostles. Um... We don't know why one was called the greater and one was called the lesser. Uh, if, it, excuse me? Size or age. 
Well, there you go. And I was just going to say, you took the words right out of my mouth. If you watch The Chosen, uh, one James is a big guy, and the other James is a small guy. And in The Chosen, they refer to them as Big James and Little James. Yes, correct. Mary of Magdala, that refers to, identifies who she is, yeah. You've got a lot of Marys, a lot of Jameses. There are some people, though, Dennis, who feel that this James was also not either of the two apostles, uh, that this could be even yet another completely different James. So we don't know for sure uh, who this James was, but um, he obviously was a believer and a follower and a well-known member of the group because uh, it was common knowledge. All they had to do was say, Mary, the mother of James, and everyone knew they were talking about. So it wasn't some distant guy who they weren't familiar with. This was this James. If he was, obviously, if he was one of the 12 apostles, they would know who he was. But some commentators feel that this was not that James either that it was a completely separate James, a completely different person who was a follower of Jesus, but not an apostle and not the brother of Jesus. So. And even Jesus was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Correct. Yes, because there were other people named Jesus at the time. And so Jesus of Nazareth was an identifier that this is the... And that's why you see over and over and over again, Jesus of Nazareth is in the New Testament. All the, I'd like to find out how many times it is is almost always referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, and that's because they're identifying him as that particular Jesus. Although sometimes, I think the religious rulers used it as a term of denigration, because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And so they were, so the religious leaders were kind of, you know, putting it to the believers and saying, you believe in this guy who came out of Nazareth? This Jesus of Nazareth of all places? So I think sometimes as an identifier, it depends on the context and who's using it, who's saying it, but I think sometimes as an identifier that this is that Jesus, but sometimes I think it's also, especially the way the religious leaders might have used it as a term of denigration uh, to, to him. So, good question, Stan. Okay, so uh, verse 11, and appeared before that, oh, I was talking about, okay, now verse 12, and this is the verse we're really going to spend most of our time on here uh, today. But Peter having risen up, ran to the tomb, and having stooped down, he sees the linen clothes lying alone, and went away home, wondering at that which had come to pass. So here is Peter. The old, Well, we know John also goes. John tells us about him going, but Luke just tells us about Peter going. So, uh, why do you think? Because and the idea here of the word "ran" is that, however, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. The idea of running there is the idea that Peter ran really hard. He he ran with all he was worth. It wasn't like it was a you know, nice little polite jog out in the countryside. No, the idea of the word "ran" there in the Greek means he ran as hard as he could run, as fast as he could run, to get there as quickly as he could. So why did Peter do that? What made Peter go to the tomb? What made him run? It had to be, he had to, he had to still be thinking it was dangerous to go, right? Because they were all in hiding because they were afraid for their own lives. 
And so nothing had changed about that. It would still have been dangerous at that time. If it was dangerous before, it'd be dangerous now. It might have been even he, he might, for all he knew, it was a life-threatening trip to take there if he got caught by the Romans or got caught by the religious leaders as a follower of Jesus, as Peter, the the, the main guy. Uh, but yet he still went. So what what do you think made him go? Why did he have to go, Grady? Well, you know, that brings up two two different motivations. And uh, let's talk about yours first, Cheryl. And that is that one of the motivations for him to go might have been hope, right? That just like when the women remembered what Jesus said, when the angel reminded them, that maybe Peter remembered what Jesus said too, when the women told the disciples about what the angel had said. And so maybe he's running to the tomb full of hope, hoping that what the women said will be true. He thinks that it's nonsense. He thinks it's idle talk. He thinks it's a babbling of a crazed mind. But maybe deep down inside, remember what Jesus said, there's a small seed of hope, and his motivation is going to the tomb hoping that it's true. Hoping that it's true. And he's going to go find out if it is or not. So that's one possibility. The other part, Grady, is the guilt, and that's what I was talking about earlier. And I I think that's another motivator. I don't know if that's because I'm an absolute. Sorry about that. This one doesn't talk about the fact that they didn't believe him because women were talking nonsense when they came back. Correct. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's just, that was, he just said, this can't be true. And if so, what has happened to the body? I mean, Okay, so that brings up that brings up another, that brings up another possible possible motivation. So maybe he doubted. Maybe he didn't have hope. Maybe he doubted, and he was full filled with doubt, and so he went there to prove that it was not true. So you could have maybe he was filled with hope, going to hope that it was true, and he had to go find out for himself, or maybe he really did think the women were just cray-cray, and he doubted, and he went to prove that they were wrong, and he didn't believe that. Both of those could be possible. We don't know exactly. Right, exactly. He could be hopeful that they're right, or he could be doubtful that they were not right. Either one of those could have motivated him to go to find out for himself. Could there have been, yeah. there have been a situation where it was guilt and shame? I mean, the whole thing is that, okay, he denied, you know, Jesus three times. Right. And, and that guilt and shame was there, and then, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got this problem here. I don't believe it. Right. i got to check it out because I was the one that denied him. Right. And so, in human nature, is going to be when you feel that guilt and shame, you're going to act it out. He was acting it out. He was living for two days, three days, in this pit of whatever, 
expression of what he had done, and then he hears this, and then maybe just a little bit in my mind, So, yes, guilt is definitely a motivator. We just saw it this morning. Dennis moved up front because we made him feel guilty for not sitting next to Ruth. Um, all the time reacting. They're right. Guilt, guilt, can, guilt can. Well, we just said. Chuck just said us talking about housekeeping makes him feel guilty. He's going to go home and clean his house. You know, I mean, guilt is a motivator, and certainly uh, Peter's guilt for denying Jesus is, is no question. He felt guilty, and that could have been the motivator to go and find out. I think it's all. I think it's all. So curiosity. I think it's guilt. Just think, uh, you know, his heart stirred. Yes, running hard to get out there. <laughs> the idea there is he ran hard to get out there. Uh, in, in that case, Jeff, I think one of, we could say that he might have been confused. You know, he wasn't sh- he wasn't sure. Uh, he wanted to have hope, but he had doubt. And so he was confused, and he didn't know what to believe. And in his confusion, he wanted to go out and check it out himself. It's kind of like those old uh, movies and so forth, where you have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. And then one's Christian, say, well, he's probably, that's probably true. It probably did rise, and he is resurrected. The other one was saying, he's crazy. These people, are, don't listen to them. And so he has these conflicting, confusing thoughts, and he doesn't know. And so he's going to go out and find out for himself. Uh, I was going to tell you a motivator for me one time was um, in, in ministry. Uh, there was a time when we had a sister of a member of our church who was in hospice care. And uh, I had been visiting her once or twice. And there was a time when I was out near the hospice place and I was, I, I just felt like, you know, I should go see her, but I didn't really want to. I don't know. I was tired. I was hungry. I don't know what it was. But for some reason, my human nature didn't want to do it, even though I felt like I should do it. And I didn't do it. And she passed away, like, the next day. And I never got to see her that last time. And I felt so guilty about that, because God was telling me, I'm sure, he was telling me to go see her, knowing that she wasn't going to live much longer. I felt so guilty about that, and for a long time. And so uh, then uh, a year or two later, uh, one of our members uh, went into Judson Village uh, Care Center and uh, permanently as a resident. And uh, for about the first year or two, year, maybe a little bit more than a year, every single Sunday after church, I visited her. Every single Sunday. Because I felt so guilty about not visiting the other. And that guilt motivated me to go see her. You know, after Sunday, after you preach and you do the thing you do as a minister, you're wiped out. I mean, I don't know about you, Dennis, or you, Joe, uh, but when I, when I got home, I was, that was it. Done. I'm done. Uh, so to go visit someone after that uh, took a lot of effort and energy. But I felt so guilty about doing it. I never regretted doing it. And I kind of I kind of pulled back from it when she one day said to me, you know, Greg, you don't have to come see me every Sunday. <laughs> but, you know, 
Guilt is a definite motivator in, in so many different ways. Okay. There's one other thing I think we can think about as far as maybe why Peter did it, and that is because this is just Peter's nature. Right? Peter is a man of action, isn't he? Let's take a few of the things, right? Peter was a doer, okay? Here are a few things that I just wrote down. Uh, he wanted to build the monuments on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? He goes up the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and Peter wants to build monument, build, build uh, altars to all of them up there. And God says, that's not necessary. And uh, then he was, um, he was the one that cut off the ear of Malchus the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the uh, high priest's uh, servant. Uh, man of action. He's gonna, and he, you know why he cut off his ear? Because the guy ducked. He was trying to cut his head off. But he, the guy ducked and he missed and just got the ear. He wasn't like aiming for the ear. <laughs> and uh, uh, Peter was the one who um, went back to fishing after Jesus was crucified. And even after he knew he was resurrected, you find later Jesus going to find the disciples, and there's Peter out fishing. Peter's plan, Peter's plan post Jesus' crucifixion resurrection was to go back to being to fishing. That's what he knew. That's how he was going to make a living. And Jesus had to say, "No, Peter, that's not what I want you to do. So come out of the fish boat." But but he was going to go back to fishing. He was a man of action. And remember, he was the one who jumped out of the boat during the storm when Jesus came walking on the water. That was, that was Peter. And when, when Jesus did appear to them on the, uh, on the shore uh, during that time when Peter was fishing again after the resurrection, John, was, John said, that's, that's Jesus up there on the shore. It was Peter who jumped in and swam to shore alone. So Peter was a man of action. And so this just might have been his nature to get up and run to the tomb because that's just what Peter did. He wasn't a man who sat around. He was a man that got up and went and did things. Okay, so now Peter is home. Uh, we see very clearly there in verse 12, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, bending, saw the strips of linen by themselves, and he went away home is what uh, it says in the original Greek. It's not in my, is it in your translation that he went home? Okay, so he went away home, wondering to himself what had happened. So Peter's at home, right? So what do you think is going through his mind here? Okay, now he saw the stone rolled away. He saw the empty tomb. He saw that Jesus was gone. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He did not see the angel, so that's kind of something. But he heard the testimony of the women who told him about the angel and what the angel said and the message that he's alive, that he's risen. And he's heard, remember, Jesus said this beforehand, the women are saying, remember? So he's seen things and he's heard things and he's going home now. And we don't know exactly what we have is a description here that says from Luke that Peter was wondering to himself about what had happened. So what do you think is going through his mind? What would be going through your mind? <laughs> what happens now? <laughs> I 
They were later that evening. That morning, it's possible. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. I can't say it did happen. We don't know in the morning exactly where they all were, but certainly later in the evening they were all together. So it's very possible they were all together that morning. It's very possible, yeah. I'm not going to disagree. Correct. That's right. He's trying to... He's, he's, He's trying to get his head around it, isn't he? He didn't go back to the upper room where the other ones were, assuming the other ten were there, because he wanted to kind of, you know, sometimes you think better by yourself than being among other people. He's, I think he was saying, i got to go home. I got to. So if you look up in um, verse 4, it says about the women, while they were wondering about this. And then we find in verse 12, Peter wondering to himself. But these two words in the Greek are not the same. So the word for wandering in verse 4 for the women means they were entirely at a loss. They were perplexed. That's the idea, perplexed and at a loss. They couldn't get, they, they, just, they just had a loss to even deal with what was going on. The word perplexed in verse 12 about Peter, though, is more the idea of being amazed by something, of marveling at something. It's the idea of being surprised. You're so surprised by something because you're, you're a witness to something that you did not expect to happen. You're taken aback by it. Um, so I'm going to take, I know we're running kind of close to time, but I want to go back here to Luke 9. If you want to go to Luke 9 real quick, um, there's another time when this word is used in a different context. Luke 9, verse 37, it says, the next day when they came down from the mountain, this is where they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The next day after they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Uh, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And then verse 41, O unbelieving perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with, with you? Bring your son here. And verse 42, Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God, while everyone was marveling at all Jesus did. So, and it did, he said to his disciples, blah, blah, blah. So, the word amazed there in verse 43 is not the word we're talking about in verse 12 of 24. The word amazed in verse 43 there is the idea of, it's, a, it's actually a violent term. It means to be struck, to be hit with something that's astonishing and shocking. Uh, it's like getting hit in the gut. So, that what they, said, they were they were they were hit in the gut with something so astonishing and shocking that they couldn't believe it, hardly. But the idea that, that the same word is marveling there in verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, that's the same word used in verse 12 of 24. Marveling, they were surprised by what Jesus did in that situation. And so this is what Peter is dealing with. He's 
He's just surprised by it. He's having a hard time taking it in. He's taken aback by it. And um, so it's different than being perplexed. It's the idea of just being surprised by something and taken aback by it. And that's the way Peter, that's the way Peter was feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Peter was all these things were going through his mind probably at the time. He was why he went home to think about. It. At this point, though, he hasn't. We don't have him. And John, when we get to John, we'll find out that John saw all of this and John believed in it. Believed it happened. We don't have that same testimony here of Peter. At this point, I think he's still not sure. We don't have that Peter saw and believed. We have Peter saw and went home and was, you know, surprised and, and taken aback and not knowing how to deal with it and and that kind of thing. Uh, I think. Okay. Here's one way I, 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 I kind of think of the difference between being perplexed. Uh, like the women were, or being surprised like Peter was. And that is, <laughs> you don't think this is crazy, but this is how I, I think of it, is like, I like magic. Do you like magicians? I, I love magic tricks. And uh, I'll be watching a magic trick on television or whatever, and there'll be a certain magic trick, and I'll say, I wonder how he did that. I'm perplexed by it. How in the world did he do that trick? I don't. I don't understand it. I don't. I'm perplexed by it. I try to. I, I try to. It's just beyond my understanding. But then some magic tricks are so over the top and so incredible that I don't even go there. I'm just like shocked by it. I'm like, oh my gosh! I can't. Oh my gosh! What? I can't believe he did that. I'm taken aback by the magic trick. So that's the difference. It was. To Peter, it wasn't something that perplexed him because it was even more than that. He was just overwhelmed by it. Yeah, sure, Jeff. In Luke 9, there were witnesses to that miracle. Yes. Right? Casting out demons. Yeah. The women actually saw, okay, and that was a, that was a miracle, correct? Yeah. Because Peter didn't see anything. Other than what he saw in the in the tomb, so I think he was he was astonished, kind of hoping to find something, some semblance of the of what of the expectation. You know what I mean? Uh, and then he walked away marveling. I think marveling is different different context between the two of them, between the women and the yes, there was a difference. Yeah, totally different context. There was different. Well, there's a lot of possible reasons that might have happened, um, but I think for one thing, um, yeah. I think uh, God just wanted the men to believe the women. I think. You know, this is a good enough, you don't need to hear directly from the angel. I talk to the women. The women talk to you. They're reliable. They're honest. They're trustworthy. They're my followers too. Their word is solid gold. So why do I need to appear to Peter to tell him when the women, when I already appeared to the women and the women have already told? So 
There was no need to appear a second time. He appeared once. You remember, I think it was in, in Matthew where the disciple, where the angel said, you go and tell them I've done my job. It's like, I love reading that because it's like, I see the angel saying, I've told you, now it's up to you, I'm out. I did what I had to do. So, you know, you don't have to appear twice and make the same pronouncement two times. I made it once, it was to the women, that's good enough. Believe them. I think this says a lot about Peter's heart. You know, he ran, he ran, he went to the sea, um, and I think Marla, he was just even more surprised when he got there and just saw what he saw. Yeah, and, and this is one, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want to, I don't want to end uh, Luke without dealing with the last word of the uh, verse 12, which is wondering to himself what had happened. And the word happened there is a, um, a really interesting word. So it means not only what took place, that's part of it, but it is a word that has a more uh, a connotation that's more than just that he was wondering and marveling and surprised about what had happened, what had taken place. The idea there is uh, wondering what has begun. Wondering what has begun. So what he's wondering, what he's surprised about, what he's trying to, what he's taking aback from, what he's trying to get his head around is not what just ha what happened, but what has come to be that was not there before. In other words, Jesus' resurrection and rising from the dead is such a bombshell that it's not just what happened yesterday or this morning, it's what has begun, what, what, what is new now, how have things changed? Things have changed. How have they changed? What new has begun that was never begun before? So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So in World War II, when we dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the thinkers of the world at that time, although everyone's celebrating because it ended the war, the deep thinkers of that day were thinking, this changes everything. These bombs change everything. We're now in a nuclear war situation, not an atomic, the atomic world, and something new has begun now in warfare that never existed before because we had the atomic bomb. Another place this word is used, turn over to John, if you were, it's just a couple pages over. John chapter one. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And then verse 3. Through Him all things were made. Or the Greek says, Through Him all things came into being. Without Him nothing came into being that came into being. Okay? So nothing was made that had not been made. Uh, so it says, in the English, it would say, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. The Greek says, through him all things came into being, without him nothing came into being that came into being. 
something new came into being through Christ. And that word came into being there is the same exact word as happened in verse 12 of 24. What, what Peter is dealing with and grappling with here is something new has come into being, something new has begun, and what is it? And how does that, how does that affect me? And how does it affect the world from this point forward? You know, that's, I had never thought of that before. Now, just think of the message that he then delivered. In Acts. In Acts. I mean, he was starting to put together a message, I think. Exactly. This is where the seed started. Yeah. And then when he, he says to the people gathered together, something new has happened. The Holy Spirit has come. It all goes back because it started at the empty tomb. Something new has begun here. Yeah. Later on, Yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yes. Well, and the interesting thing there is, and we'll talk about that at some point here, and we as we go along. But sometime between the tomb and the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to Peter, and Peter makes it to the upper room before the two through Emmaus get back there. When the two to Emmaus get back, there's a party going on. There's a party going on in the upper room. Because why? Because Peter came back and said, I saw him. And now I believe. So we say doubting Thomas, but when you take Peter here in chapter 24, verse 12, who was still not sure, and for all we know, he wasn't sure until he got to the upper room later in Luke. It's very likely Peter didn't believe either completely and totally until Jesus made this appearance to him, which we don't have it really documented, but it happened. We have it referred to. So we say doubting Thomas, but we might be just as well say doubting Peter, who might not have been much different than Luke if we really knew the true story, the whole story there. So. Do I, oh well, <laughs> because that was a they weren't they were their faith wasn't quite that far yet. <laughs> it's a step by step process. <laughs> All right, guys, we're running late, so that's it. That's That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.